Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Good evening, everyone. It's great to have you here with us tonight. Feel free to grab a seat and pick up those conversations uh, after the service. Uh, as Lauren mentioned, if you haven't met me before, my name is Ben. Welcome to Gateway. Happy 2024. Hey, I want to start with just a little bit of, I guess, self-revelation, uh, a bit of transparency between um, me and you, a room full of people I know and some that I don't. Uh, but I have a tendency towards being hyper self-critical with an extremely high level of self-expectation bordering on perfectionistic. I know it must be a pleasure to be inside my mind, but to highlight this, at my 21st, I thanked everyone for coming, thanked everyone for being my friends, and then I finished my little, you know, thank you spiel with this. I know I'm not perfect yet, but hopefully I'll figure that out in the next 21 years. Now, obviously it's a little bit of a joke, but also every joke has a little bit of truth in it. And I genuinely thought that I would figure myself out and operate at some saintly level of moral perfection by 42. I mean, to be fair, 42 feels like the beginning of the end, so I thought hopefully I would have it sorted by then. I mean, I'm 32, just got my first pair of glasses. And uh, I mean, if you need any more evidence, Tim Lucas, our campus pastor, he's 42. So case in point, all right, the beginning of the end. Likes the delay of how you finally realize that. Anyway, as you can imagine, being quite self-critical with a high level of self-expectation, it makes my um, relationship with New Year's resolutions tense, would be the word. It's a complicated affair. See, I want to make them so that I have goals and markers for the progress that I'm making towards the better me, while at the same time being bitterly disappointed since to be frank, there's only one that I can ever remember keeping. And it was this. I made a commitment one year to not eat any large meals from fast food vendors. That was it. That was my New Year's resolution. The reason being, I was a youth pastor at the time, and uh, I you know, spent a lot of time sitting at my desk, because that's what we do, and going to coffee shops and, you know, what else pastors do? You guys all know exactly what pastors do, don't you? Um, send emails, do meetings, all that kind of stuff. You're sitting around eating a lot of food, connecting with a lot of people. And I developed a little bit of what my wife lovingly calls a cookie sack, just <laughs> here, where I was storing all of my said cookies that uh, I'd been eating. And I decided, you know what, it's time for me to sharpen up. And of course, I couldn't completely cut out fast food because I'm a youth pastor, right? Like, if I did that, what would my identity be as a person, right? Like, you're a youth pastor, you probably eat fast food, and I mean, where else would I meet my leaders or eat after youth? It was just, it was too difficult. So, a medium meal with water for the drink was my New Year's resolution, and I can safely say I've been doing that for the past decade. I know, sometimes the New Year's resolution will stick. But, the reason I've grown so cynical towards these New Year's resolutions is because all it seems to do is remind me of all the ways I don't live up to my own expectations. Now, part of that is because I have an incredible ability to make my life more complicated than it needs to be. 
Another aspect of that, obviously, is there's a lot of uncontrollable circumstances, and we all have a few people in our life who are also uncontrollable. But the most frustrating thing is my inability to control myself. Now, I don't know how many of you have made New Year's resolutions because, to be frank, it feels like they've become a little bit less popular. And I think that's partly because we've just been told ad nauseum about all the statistics about how many people give up. Like, 23% of all people give up on their New Year's resolution in the first week. And I think that is a striking criticism about our lack of um, resilience and faithfulness as a culture. I mean, come on, 23% of people give up after seven days? Like, what was your goal? Deadlift 300 kilograms? You're like, "Ah." can't do it, give up, you know, like, like what is that? 47% of people will end the first month giving up their New Year's resolution, and ultimately, in the end, only 9% of New Year's resolutions are ever seen through to the end of the year. Instead, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, we have this new thing, we have themes for the New Year. Anyone here got a theme for the New Year? Chances are it's consistency or joy. And uh, these themes are kind of just, probably, to be frank, a little bit healthier because they're a little bit more vague and spacious. I mean, what does it mean for your New Year's theme to be joy? Are you just going to smile more? Try and find funnier friends? You know, like, what, what, what does that even mean for you to have more joy? But that's my rant aside. The truth is, I know that all of us here tonight, whether we have a New Year's resolution or not, would be able to look at our lives and look at ourselves and know that there are things we want to work on. There are things that we wish we were better at. You know, for some of us, we may uh, want to be a little less angry. We may want to have a little bit more control of our temper because, to be frank, we seem to lose it all the time. Some of you here may want to be better savers because, again, as much as you try, you keep finding great ways to spend money. And to be fair, holidays are a great thing to do, but you also at the same time have some larger goals that you'd rather be saving for. Others of you here, you might want a better relationship with your parents, but you keep judging them and their decisions, or you always get a little bit too defensive whenever they make a comment that seems like the slightest disagreement with what you've decided to do. Others of you, you're here at the start of this new year because you want to have a better relationship with God. You're like, you know what, I've been to church two weeks in a row, killing it, starting to read my Bible, starting to pray. We, 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 we are doing these things because we want to take some step forward. Now, it may not be any of these things, but as I said, I'm sure each of you can think of that thing in your life. The challenge I find is that when we want to change something, we can really focus on it and then end up becoming really aware of all the ways that we don't measure up to it. Uh, Thomas Merton, this Trappist monk, has this quote that says, the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. The one who does most to avoid suffering is, in the end, the one who suffers most. Now, to use one of our examples from before, you could say it something like this. The more you want to stop losing your temper, the more you realize the ways you get angry. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to show you your underlying anger in proportion to your desire for things to be better. See, the one who wants to control their temper is in fact the one who is most aware of the ways they don't. 
Paul says it in a similar way, but in relationship, in relationship to our walk with God in Romans 5.20 when he says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Now, this is a one-sentence summary of one aspect of why God has given us his law. You know, he also gave it to us because he loved his people and wanted us to have a roadmap for how to live individual and communal lives of thriving. But one of the major byproducts of the law was this, that each person could see written down in front of them the ways God wanted us to live for our personal and communal best and all the ways we failed to meet those expectations. Now, if you're here this evening and you are following Jesus, then I imagine the areas you're wanting to work on in yourself may be influenced by who you have seen Jesus to be or what you have seen in his word as you've tried your best to lean into it, understand it, and become more like him. Yet I'm imagining you've had this same felt experience of wanting to work on yourself, become more like Jesus, and yet experience this paradox that the more you became aware of the ways you want to become better, the more you became aware of the ways that you don't measure up to both your own and God's expectations. So the question, I think, becomes, what do we turn to when we don't live up to our or God's expectations? Because it isn't if we will, it's just that we won't. See, it's a great question because I think we can all respond differently. All of us will have different ways of kind of uh, responding to this sense of disappointment, of not living up to our own expectations or God's expectations. The first one, some of you may uh, fall into this category. You might uh, just resign yourself quietly to your lot in life. You know, just a, a quiet resignation. You know, it is what it is. I guess I'm just one of those people who has a little bit of a temper. I guess that's just how it's going to be in life. You know what I mean? I'm 21 and it's basically just locked in from here right like I can't change I'm so old already you know like that's probably what some of you are already thinking this is how life is this is who I am others of you might engage in a little bit of mental self-flagellation and no I wasn't talking about the thing that your parents told you not to do as teenagers mental self-flagellation it's this thing where it's like we kind of beat ourselves up whip ourselves over the back some of you it's it's that hypercritical voice in your head that just lists all the ways you don't deserve love, all the ways you're a failure, and insert whatever else your mental narrative is that you go to when you feel like you've messed up. Others of us will project the opposite. We feel like we don't measure up, so instead we project all the ways that we do measure up. You know, our life is perfect, we look perfect, our shoes are great, our pants are ironed, our shirt is ironed, our hair is done. Everything is in order. I am morally perfect, while we have a simmering imposter syndrome bubbling away under the surface. Yet I believe there's actually another option, another way for us to, uh, to kind of live in this reality that we don't measure up and we're not going to measure up. And it's found again in Romans 5.20, which continues after that kind of confronting slash discouraging first sentence where Paul continues, you know, he said God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. See, for Paul, he sees his failures not as defeating him, nor as fuel for self-rejection, nor as a reason to cover up and project some sense of moral perfection, but rather for him, 
His failures are reminders of God's incredible grace. See, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Paul continues kind of this thinking as he writes to the Corinthians when he says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Now, this is a little bit interesting language, but most uh, commentators agree that this isn't, you know, some physical ailment, nor is it like a demon that's just coming and annoying, you know, uh, Paul, but it's almost certainly some behavior that Paul knows to be sinful that he is struggling to overcome and can't seem to get on top of. So he continues to ask God for help, just as we do, yet look at what happens. He continues when he says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ can work through me. See, whenever I read that last, that last part of the verse, when Paul's like, I'm boasting in my weaknesses, I kind of always imagine him uh, just walking into his, uh, into his churches that he's kind of planted, going back in, meeting some of the new believers for the first time, like, hey, I'm Paul, and, you know, insert whatever his issue is, let's say it's a temper issue, hey, I'm Paul, I've got a temper problem. You know, like, he's kind of like, that's how he starts, like he's going into Alcoholics Anonymous, or he's sitting with his friends who are talking to, you know, each other about their successful week, you know, closed a couple of business deals, built a table, you know, all that kind of great stuff. And, and Paul's like, well, for me, punched a hole in three walls. Only one of them was in my house. You know, like, it's like, he's just boasting about all the ways he's messed up. It's like, yeah, had a bit too much to drink the other night, go me. You know, like, that's kind of like the feeling it sounds like. But again, it's, it's not that Paul is boasting about all the ways he's messed up. He's not boasting about all of his, uh, his issues, not broadcasting it for the world to see. Instead, he's boasting about the growing realization that this is an opportunity to remember his need for the grace of God and that he can rest in that instead. Now, before we go any further, I want us to have a common definition of what this word grace means. We hear it a lot in church, and sometimes we've grown up around it. We kind of have a concept. We understand that it's like something to do with forgiveness, but it's a little bit more than that. And it's not a word that's used too uh, commonly. Like, I actually typed into Google, you know, define grace, and it comes up with a graph of how it's been used over recent history in Google Books. You can see it behind me. Uh, as you can see, 1700s, not too great. We had a real spike in the uh, 1750s to the 1800s to the 1850s, and I don't know what happened after the 1850s. Probably the gold rush in Ballarat, am I right? The world went to hell after that. And uh, it just declined, declined, declined. But look, we've had a little uptick you know, recently. Look at that. Look at us using the word grace a little bit more. It's probably in people's names, unfortunately, but that's okay. The best or simplest definition I think we can agree on about this idea of what does grace mean is this. Grace is God extending to us undeserved favor. Grace is God extending to us undeserved favor. See, grace is commonly linked with the forgiveness of sins. That's often the context that we hear it in, which it definitely is. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, God saved you by his grace. God saved you by his undeserved favor upon us when you believed. And you can't take credit for this because it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. Now this is helpful for us to know, this definition of grace. It's God extending his undeserved favor to us. But how does this help us when we're struggling with all the ways we fall short of our and God's expectations? 
How does it become something else we can trust in? Well, it comes back again to what Paul said in Romans 5.20. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. Because for most of us, we will come to a point in our lives where we will do something so grievous that we believe that God could not have enough grace to cover that moment. That we are no longer worthy of God's grace because of what we've done. For others of us, it will be that we've actually been struggling with the same thing for so long that we feel like surely God has given up on us. Even if we have given up on ourselves, we go, God must also feel the same way. Now, I'm aware that we've got some different ages uh, in the room tonight. There may be some of you sitting here thinking like, you know, you're, you're a little bit older, you've been on the other side of this. You're going, yep, I've, I've had that experience. Or I feel that tension because I've been dealing with this sin for, you know, or this, this personality issue, however you want to describe it, for 20 or 30 years, longer than some of us have been alive. And there's some of us in the room right now who are sitting here going, I'm 16, and um, my word of hope for you is there will be moments that are a lot worse than right now. <laughs> I can almost guarantee there will be moments where you'll go, this is the worst it can get, and it will at some point get worse. <laughs> Happy 2024. I hope it's a great one. But seriously, this is, it's, it's a hard experience to kind, of, to kind of tell you about because for all of you, you know, like particularly when you're young, you're going, this is the worst it's ever been. It's like um, your first breakup, right? You go, oh my gosh, I dated this boy for six weeks and he broke up with me and this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. I'm heartbroken, right? And then you've got like, you're talking to your youth leader who's like broken up with someone after three years and they're like, you don't even understand heartache, you know? And then you're telling that as a youth leader to like this older person who's just lost the love of their life that they've been married to for 55 years and like, you don't even understand loss, you know? Like, there's these levels that we can't comprehend at these different stages, but this is a message, this is what I'm trying to get to, this is a message that I think for some of us who are younger that can be less dealing with what's currently happening or what has happened and can instead be something that protects us and prepares us for what's to come. Because the truth is for all of us, we will at moments feel like we've exhausted God's grace because it's taken too long to fix something up. Or we've done something so big that actually we go, I could never ask God for that much grace and he would never grant it to me. See, Dane Orland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. See, we are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a, a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will eventually grow tired of us. It's a confronting diagnosis, but I found it to be true. But the actual truth, the opposite of what we feel, is that as your sin, as you have continued to fail to meet these expectations, God's wonderful grace has actually become more and more abundant. That his grace has actually continued to go before you. 
An old theologian called A.W. Tozer, when reflecting on this passage, says this, we must keep in mind that the grace of God is infinite and eternal. As it had no beginning, so it can have no end. And being an attribute of God, it is as boundless as infinitude. He goes on to say, although we feel our iniquities, our sin, our failed expectations rise over us like a mountain, the mountain nevertheless has definable boundaries. It is only so large, it is only so high, and it only weighs a certain amount and no more. But who shall define the limitless grace of God? See, this truth uh, hit home for me the other month uh, as I, I kind of read this chapter about God's grace in Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Great read if you're looking for a, for a read this uh, year. And I just read that and I, I got in the car, I was driving somewhere, probably to Carindale or something like that, and, and I turned the music off and I just kind of like let this, this, this chapter kind of like marinate in my mind, right? Just kind of let it sit there, soak it all up. And, and as I'm driving, I'm kind of sitting with this thing, thinking about like, you know, like my sin, and I'm like, it feels like a lot sometimes, and I've done some pretty you know, bad things, I'm a terrible person, you know, all the really encouraging, uplifting stuff that we think about from time to time. And I, all of a sudden, it kind of hits me that, that I'm driving this car, and if this car was to be the summary of all of my sin, past, present, and future, God's grace would be the, the road I was driving on. It's wider than the car, it's behind the car, it's in front of the car. I'm gonna probably keep driving on roads. I know some of you guys here love to go off-road, but for this metaphor, let's stay on-road. I'm gonna follow this road, I'm gonna turn off, I'm gonna go home, and I'm gonna be on road the whole way, and it's gonna to continue to go before me. I'll wake up the next day, reverse off the road, drive to work, and I'll be on a road this whole time, and it's, it's always gonna be before me, it's always gonna be around me. I'm trying to explain this to, um, to my wife, Rach, that night at dinner, we're sitting in a restaurant, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the burger that's just come out and been like, well, the burger, no, it's too delicious to be sin, right? Am I, am I right? It's like, no, I can't, I can't use that, it'll be confusing. Um, and so I go, okay, all right, let's imagine this booth that we're sitting in is our combined sin. Then the restaurant we're in is God's grace. For us here this evening, Let's think about it in another way. If all of us in this room, if we combined all of our sin, all of the ways that we failed to meet and live up to God's expectations, let's call it Brisbane. Sounds like a lot, but let's call it Brisbane. If that is our combined sin, then God's grace is the Southern Hemisphere. I don't know if you've ever tried to look on Google Maps and zoom out that far to see the whole Southern Hemisphere, but you can't even really make out where Brisbane is. Let me try and say it again in a way that, that will hopefully really open your eyes. If all of human, humanity spent all of our lives sinning as frequently and as detestably as possible, and then all of us turned to him at the end of human history and in one voice and with purity of heart asked for his forgiveness, he would grant it and we wouldn't have even made a dent in the amount of grace God has for us. See, your sin is to do with your doing, but God's grace is attached to your being. 
to who you are at the core of yourself. See, it's hard to comprehend, but our sin is finite because we are finite beings, and God's grace is infinite because he is an infinite being. So we can rest in knowing that we can actually never outpace God's grace. It will always be infinitely more than we can do. It will always be there waiting for us before we even miss the mark or fail our expectations. See, God's grace goes before you. It's there for you in the next few seconds. It'll be there for you in the decades from now. He is already there with his grace waiting for you. This is what we can trust in, the grace of God. See, the reason we can trust in the grace grace of God is that we can have confidence in his heart for us. When we look to Jesus speaking about the heart of God for humanity in John 3.16, he says, for this is how God loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, that it was God's love for his people and how it compelled him to act. That that it's this love and grace that could be expressed and known. Paul, uh, then in Romans, unpacks it a little bit further when he says, we were utterly helpless and Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, Though someone might be perhaps willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So we've heard from Jesus what God's heart is to us. But he didn't just tell us. He showed us through his death on the cross. See, the cross is both the defining act that has made God's grace possible through Jesus' death and sacrifice, but it's also the physical expression of God's love for us, his people. It's how we know that not only does God have limitless grace, but that he actually wants to give it to us. He wants to extend that grace to us, that, that we're not trying to twist his arm to be kind and gracious to us, that actually it's his heart's desire to pour out his grace upon us, his people. See, Dane Ortland again says this, see, Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dissipated now that he is in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down, settling back once more into kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as it ever was in his incarnate state. Now, while it may at times feel like we haven't experienced it, the objective truth is you have. The objective truth is that it's available to you, that it has been given to you. See, we can choose to either live from our felt experiences or live from the true reality. Now, you might not feel that you've felt God's grace, but he has extended it to you. You have already been forgiven. We know this because it goes before us and it goes on infinitely. We know this because he died on the cross to show us his love and he still feels the same now. The hard truth may actually be that you're resisting it. Uh, See, for me, in in 2022, I had to come face to face with some stuff in my life and I ended up taking four months off work, as some of you may be aware. And I realized that much of my way of thinking, my motivations, my actions were broken and sinful. So during that time, I questioned the sincerity of my faith, the validity of my calling, 
And to be frank, I don't know if there was an area of my life that during that time wasn't revealed for not being what it should be. See, Paul has this uh, famous kind of uh, line in 1 Timothy where he's writing to Timothy and he says, I am the chief of all sinners. And I felt like just quickly writing to Paul and saying, no, Paul, that's me. See, things finally started to turn around for me about three months in. One night, um, I'm talking with Rach in tears, and I prayed the most authentic, honest, and humiliating prayer I'd ever prayed, just asking for God's grace. Now, I didn't have uh, one of those uh, super profound moments where like Jesus walked in the room or where I was transported to heaven, but I did have a profound sense that I knew that I'd received the grace of God. You know what the most eye-opening part was? I'd spent the past three months not really praying, not really opening the Bible. I'd been cutting myself off from everyone, being ruthless to myself in my head, all because I felt that I deserved to be cast off and that I actually couldn't receive God's grace until I'd been put through enough suffering to deserve it. Only to pray a simple prayer and know God's grace went before me, that I had received it afresh. And in fact, only to look back and realize that all I'd ever been met with during that time was God's grace and the grace of the people around me. In fact, if I look back further, I could see that it was God's grace that had brought it all up so that we could clean it all up together. See, my felt experience said, I don't deserve God's grace. But true reality was I never did, but he gave it to me anyway. And some of you may be sitting here tonight in a similar place, feeling like, hey, I'm here, but I don't think I'm worthy of God's love. I don't think I'm worthy of his grace. Your felt experience says you don't deserve it. But true reality says you never did, but he's given it to you anyway. So I hope your belief and faith is growing in light of what we've talked about. See, one thing I want us uh, to kind of end with and encourage you with is this. God's grace doesn't just cover your mistakes. God's grace gives you a helping hand for the future. See, Paul, after finishing Romans 5.20, can see how some people might think that this grace sounds pretty good. In fact, this grace sounds like a free pass. God's grace is more extravagant and, gr- and generous than, than my sin. Mm, cool. Why bother tidying up my life, right? Let's just do what we want when we want. You know, why bother about trying to fix these issues that I've got going on? God's grace will cover me. So Paul knows that that argument is an argument that people will have and and potentially try and, uh, you know, make the most of. But in chapter six, verse one, he says this. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? See, Paul actually calls us out of our sin and to die to it, to live in something else instead, as uh, Tim talked about in baptism, the dying to the old self and rising and living to the new life in Christ. But the reason this is so important is because death actually sets us free from all the contracts we've made. Some of you will eventually get a 30-year mortgage that you may eventually pay a ton of money on. Here's the hack. If you die before it ends, you don't have to pay it all back. I know. Life hacks with Ben. (laughs) Hot tip, don't do that. It's not the right way around it. But we we laugh because we know the contract ends when you die. 
The same thing happens with sin. We don't, we don't understand it, but, but, but before we have a relationship with Jesus, we kind of, we when we partake in sin, we kind of make a contract of like, I'm choosing to agree to your terms and conditions so that I can kind of have the life that I want on my terms. When we choose to have faith in Jesus, we die to that. God's grace comes and washes over us and, and we die to sin. Sin now no longer has the same authority and influence that it had beforehand. So then we as Christians are actually raised to live in God's grace and relationship with God through His Spirit. The reason this is so good and so hopeful is because grace actually gives us the helping hand by setting us free from the power and influence of sin. It's why we actually have hope that these things that we've been struggling with, these things that we've been trying to work through, are not our lot in life. Because the grace of God will help us. It set us free from that power and authority that this sin has had over us. See, the Christian actually has to go on the journey of the sins that beset us, the sins that seem like they are inbuilt into who we are, being removed, and us doing the work of not letting them back in. Yet grace always gives us a helping hand by showing how to live instead. Doesn't just set us free, but shows us what the new life looks like. See, Paul in Titus 2, 11 to 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And it's God's grace that is gonna help you navigate your way through life as you work at following Jesus as best you can. See, it's gonna help you say no to losing your temper when the printer won't print your sermon at 8.02 in the morning, which is what happened to me this morning. What a joy. And instead, it will show you how to live a self-controlled and upright life and become one with technology all the while covering you when you have the moments that you fall short of who you're trying to be. It's gonna help you say no to your worldly passions that have been driving your spending and instead help you to learn how to live with your finances in such a way that they bring glory to God. While His grace will cover you from the moment that you buy the new phone that makes its way into your pocket as you part with $2,000, even though you're just gonna use the same apps and won't notice the new camera anyway. It's gonna help you to hold your tongue when you have something critical and judgmental to say to your parents or to listen and be gentle with your parent rather than get defensive and upset at them for innocuous mistake. All the while giving you the grace you need to forgive them and yourself when it gets a little pear-shaped. It's gonna help you follow him by showing you how to live, by prompting you with reminders in your conscience and give you new priorities. All the while covering you in such a way that you never have to back away from God. You never have to worry that He's going to cast you off or that His grace is going to run out. That you can be confident that He loves you and wants you to be close to Him. See, God's grace goes before you. God's grace comes from His heart for you. And God's grace will give you a helping hand. See, in 2024, there is no day, no month, no moment you will go into where God's grace won't already be there with you. And so as we come to finish this evening, we're gonna partake in communion together. But before we do that, I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't create an opportunity for those in the room tonight who may have never made a decision to follow Jesus before. You've kind of been checking out church or checking out faith or you've kind of been a part of church but you've never really made faith your own, kind of like what Brennan talked about before. He's made his faith his own. 
And maybe for some of you, it's because you walked in tonight feeling like there's no way God could love me. My life's a mess. It's too messed up for Him. Or maybe the weight of the shame you've felt for what you've done has just felt too heavy to ever be lifted from you. I hope you've realized that tonight, there's nothing that you've done. There's nothing that you will do that will outpace God's grace. It's gone before you, it's gone beyond you. His grace is infinite, it's extravagant, it's generous beyond, beyond comprehension. But some of you may have never accepted this gift of grace. And so tonight, uh, across this room, I'd love for us to just close our eyes and bow our heads and just give you the opportunity, if that's you, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus before, you've never accepted His grace in your life, to actually say that tonight, that's the decision you wanna make. All I'm gonna ask you to do in a moment is to raise your hand. The reason we get you to raise your hand is it's because you're saying, I agree with that statement, I agree with that sentiment, and it helps me see you so that we can pray together in a moment. Because I'm gonna lead you in a prayer where you're gonna give your life to Jesus and ask to receive his grace. So if that's you here this evening, you've never accepted Jesus before, you know you need his grace in your life, would you just raise your hand where you are this evening? It's awesome, I see that hand over there. might be wrestling with your self and whether it's something you want to do or it's something you're worthy of doing, don't hesitate. It's awesome, I see that hand as well. Well, if you just raise your hand this evening, why don't you just put that down? But with our eyes closed and our heads bound, would you join with me in this prayer? Feel free to repeat it in your head or just under your breath. God, Thank you so much for your grace, for your undeserved favor. God, thank you that you extend this grace to me generously, not against your will. God, I'm sorry for all the times I haven't lived up to your way of living. Would you forgive me for these? God, I give you my life and I ask that your grace would help me to walk in step with you. Help me to say no to what I need to say no to and help me say yes to you. Help me to trust in your grace when I don't quite get it right. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See, if you raise your hand this evening, we'd love to connect with you and help you in this next stage of your journey. Now you can head out to the welcome desk after the service, meet one of the welcome team. They'd love to give you a gift or you can connect with one of the pastors down the front here. But for all of us in this room, we're gonna partake in communion together. Now, communion is just always a treat. Church of Christ, boy, love communion. Because communion is where we stop and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. The moment that made God's grace possible. It's a time for us to stop and reflect on the grace that you've been given, that every sin you've ever committed has been paid for, that every moment in the future where you miss the mark, his grace covers it, that because of Jesus, you're standing before God is secure and you are clean, righteous and forgiven. Your debt is paid and you can be confident every time you take this meal or think of the cross and what Jesus did, you can be confident that God's heart is for you 
that he wants to extend his grace to you. He loves to extend his grace to you. So today we're going to take communion together. Love for you to come to the front or to the back, grab the bread and the cup, and then head back to your seats and just hold it. Just want us to pray together as a community before we take the elements uh, together this evening. So please, feel free. Come to the front or to the back now. Grab the elements. We'll sit back down in a moment. pray together. Almighty and gracious God, we gather before you with hearts full of gratitude for your boundless grace. As we take these emblems, let us reflect on the sacrificial love of Christ. He offered his body and blood, not because we deserved it, but out of sheer love and grace. In this sacred act, we encounter the depth of your love and the immeasurable grace extended to us. May this time of reflection be a reminder of the grace you pour upon us. For as it says in your word, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not from ourselves, it's a gift from God. God, we come before you acknowledging our shortcomings and our sins. In your grace, forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. We trust in your mercy and grace to restore and transform us. Lord, would you bless these elements, the bread and the cup, that they may become for us a tangible expression of your love and grace. May we partake with humble hearts, recognizing the depth of your sacrificial love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's now take the bread and remember the sacrifice that was made for grace to be extended to us. And let us drink the juice to remember the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I'd love to invite you to stand now as we sing this song, Lord, I need you. Sometimes I feel like we can sing this song from a perspective of going, Lord, I need you, I need you, I need you, trying to do something to awake God's heart and favor to us. But I hope you know that as we sing this song, this is not a song of trying to do something to get God interested and warm towards us, but instead it's actually just a reminder of how much we need Him, but also a reminder of how He's already gone before us. So let's sing and reflect on how good and gracious He has been to us. Yeah. 
Father, may that be our prayer, that, Lord, we would come before you recognizing our need for you. But, Lord, recognizing that we don't need to be worthy of it or do anything to try and, and get you to be loving and kind and gracious to us. But instead, Lord, your heart is already turned that way. And so, God, I pray for each of us in this room. Lord, I pray in 2024 for the moments where it goes a little pear-shaped, for the moments where we make some mistakes, where things don't go the way that we thought they would. Lord, I pray that instead of us maybe turning to quiet resignation or being critical to ourselves, trying to pretend like everything's fine, Lord, instead that we would rest in your grace, your extravagant, infinite grace. Lord, that we would remember that it's already gone before us. Lord, that it's a reflection of your heart to us. And Lord, that you will continue to help us on the journey of becoming a little bit more like you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ or would like us to pray for you, please go to gatewaybaptist.com.au and let us know.